Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have an amazing guest. We have a great show. Today is part four of a conversation with Russell Gray, co-host of the Real Estate Guys radio show. If you haven't listened to parts one, two, and three, you definitely want to go back over the last three weeks on Saturday's episode and listen to parts one through three of my conversation with Russell Gray. This is the fourth and final part, and we are talking about real estate valuations and how they work in regular times and in today's environment. Here we go, part four of my conversation with Russell Gray. So what you're saying is don't go currency to asset to currency. You're saying go to hard asset as your end game and use only the currency as a means of exchange. Yeah, currency, that's what it is. I mean, you know, again, I don't know what it was. I, I collected coins when I was a child and I'm an old man. So I was a grade schooler in the 60s. And so I remember collecting the coins and I saw in 1964 when our government, the United States government, uh, finished the other half of the precious metals steel, right? The first one was in 1933, yep. Executive Order 6102. You've got to sell your gold to the United States of America under penalty of law for $20.67 an ounce. As soon as they collected it all, they revalued it at 35 and destroyed the purchasing power of the $20 that they just gave you, right? Nice. I don't know why we didn't revolt then. And then they outlawed your ability to own gold all the way up till 1974. This gave them unlimited printing press. And so they printed, 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 and then pretty soon they're broke. And so Nixon in 1971 had to stop the gold window. But prior to that, they had to stop putting silver in the coins. Right. And so if you took in 1965, a US quarter, a 1965 freshly minted US quarter, and you took a 1964 quarter from the year before, in 1965, they would both purchase one gallon of gas. If you put a roll of quarters, $10, which you would purchase 10 gallons of gas, or 40 gallons of gas, 40 gallons of gas, a roll of quarters in 1965, and you were to take the roll of 1965 quarters and put it in the bank and get a deposit slip for $10, and let's just assume no interest, you get your $10, and you were to take your roll of quarters, 1964 quarters, and put them in your sock drawer, and you wake up in 2020, you know, like Captain America in a deep freeze, and you go check your account, and you pull out your $10 to go buy gasoline, now you can buy four gallons. You pull out your roll of quarters from your sock drawer, you can still buy 40 gallons. See, it didn't make you rich, it simply preserved your purchasing power because money and currency used to be one and the same. But when we took the money or the precious metals out or with the, the printed dollars, we took the ability to redeem them for silver. If you find an old US dollar, it says payable to bearer on demand, one US dollar. A US dollar by law, today's law, is a fixed unit of gold and a fixed unit of silver. Yeah, It's a fixed weight. The problem is we have IOUs, Federal Reserve notes, which are promises, but they're not redeemable because they closed the gold window in 71 and they never opened it back up again. So the point is, is that we have to go back and think about the way the world has operated for thousands of years and forget this perversion that we've been involved in since 1971, where many people who are watching this right now, it's the only reality you've ever known. 
but it isn't really real. We've been living in a matrix. We've been living in a faux prosperity. If the dollar, in particular for Americans, loses its reserve currency, if the global bankers lose the ability to print money without accountability, and we go back to something like a gold standard, something where now you actually have to produce before you can eat, you actually have to trade at break even or positive in order to prosper, it's going to be a very different world. And a lot of the air that is in the economy is going to come out. Let me, let me give one quick real estate analogy so you just understand exactly how it works. Let's just say we have a very simple economy. It's got a million dollars in it, the whole economy, $1 million. And the only real estate, the only product, the only thing that exists in this economy are 10 single family homes on the same street, built by the same builder at the same time in the exact same condition. They haven't been upgraded, remodeled. They are, you, you wouldn't know the difference. You, they are 100% identical. You've got a million dollars. You've got 10 single-family homes. Based on the distribution of the available purchasing power over the available product, on average, what are those properties worth? Very clearly, you just divide by 10. $100,000, right? A million divided by 10, $100,000 each. Those are $100,000 properties, but they don't all come up for sale at the same time. So one goes up for sale and somebody in the economy who has access to whatever his share of the million dollars is, uh, manages to pay $200,000 for it because he really wants it. So he buys it. And so for the seller, it was worth $200,000. To the buyer, it was worth $200,000. That's called price discovery. When a willing buyer and a willing seller, absent any coercion on either side of the fence, enter into a transaction and do a deal, that's not the price. That's their price. Big difference. Big, big difference. Not the price. Their price. Now, stay with me. Now, the other nine homeowners get that little thing that the realtors stick on your door telling you just sold. And what do they think their house is now worth? They think their house is worth 200000 They think their house is worth $200,000. And so the appraiser comes along and does an appraisal and looks at the one that sold based on the comps, comparative sample, comparative analysis method. The appraiser agrees. The appraiser agrees, worth 200000 so all of these happy people listed on their balance sheet, they all doubled their net worth. They went from $100,000 to $200,000. How much money is in the economy? Still a million, but they think two Still million. Still a million. Yeah. Still a million. So now everybody says, this is great. I'm rich. I'm going to retire. I'm going to sell my property. When they sell their property and there's only a million dollars in the system, what's the real price? What's the reality check they're going to get? $100,000. Yeah. Absolutely. The only thing, so, so the, the stock market is valued by comparative sampling. There's 10 million shares of Apple stock out there. Some clown comes along and buys a thousand shares. That's the price that goes along a little ticker. That's the price. But if everybody who owns the stock goes to sell, that's not the price, right? Now, compare that to an apartment building that you own, 95% occupied. Every month, you have a buyer, a renter, and a seller, a landlord, and they're settling on a price, the rent. 
And it's not a hypothetical, it's not a comparative, it's not a this is what would happen if you rented, it's the actual price where money is changing hands and the transaction is settling. Do you see the difference in the stability of pricing based on income? See, if you think your net worth is assets minus liabilities equals net worth, you're going to be like I was in 2008. You're going to think you're a multimillionaire. I was a multimillionaire in 2008 and I was really poor. I just didn't know it. I didn't know it. I found out when the equity disappeared and I had no cash flow. Then I found out, as Warren Buffett said, out went the tide and there I stood, right, naked as a lark. And so the better way to evaluate your net worth is the same way you evaluate an apartment building. Look at the going capitalization rate, if you will, pick a number, and then divide your passive income by that number, and that's your net worth. And if you manage your, your net worth that way, some of you who think you're rich right now will realize you're broke and the wealth effect, this deception that they do when they pump up your 401k statement or your stock market statement and they, they, your real estate, and they make you think you're rich. So you will go spend your real money, your income. They want you to spend your real money so that you can have fake wealth, but you're not really wealthy. If you want to be really wealthy and real estate will make you really wealthy, income producing notes will make you really wealthy, then denominate and measure your wealth based on income and a cap rate and then make sure that you understand it's only currency and that what you want to be saving for liquidity, even, even your float, right? If I'm running an apartment building and I've always got $200,000 in my operating account, always, right? Sometimes it goes up to 250, 300, sometimes it dips down to two, but, but on average, I just always got a couple hundred thousand. If I pulled $100,000 out, put it all in metal, highly liquid, I'm going to pay a little bit of a transaction fee. So you do have that exchange thing. Now I've taken it out of the bank. I've taken it out of the counterparty risk and I have made it harder for myself to do stupid things with it because it's not as easy to get to. And that's worth something in my book. And I have the ability to pivot into other currencies and I've hedged against currency risk, including inflation, hyperinflation, which is how I went down this rabbit trail, right? And yet I can make a cash call if I need to. If for some reason I had a disruption in income and all of a sudden I dip down to less than 100,000 and I hit the panic button, I can always go sell my gold, convert it back into cash and put it back in. And if I'm in an inflationary environment, what's probably happened in terms of the currency value? Oh, it's clearly gone down. Well, the currency value has gone down, which means that when I sell the gold, I'm going to get more currency probably than I used to purchase it, right? So, you know, you do run a little bit of currency risk or exchange risk when you do that. But if you're, if you're concerned about inflation, I think there's a lot of reasons to be concerned about inflation in the long term. That's just one more way to just use the, the assets on your balance sheet and protect them without putting yourself in substantial jeopardy. It's a trade-off. It's a little less convenient and you do have some exchange rate exposure. But I would take that any day over counterparty risk and currency risk in today's environment. One of the things that um, I think it was Ed Griffin who said that with all this printed money, Asia got the monopoly money and we got the cars and TVs and so therefore we won. Mm -hmm. That all works as long as they're willing to accept the monopoly money. Now, the Federal Reserve has said they're willing to buy back all of those U.S. treasuries, including the ones that are held by foreign central banks. Is that inflation now going to come home to roost? Um, so I don't know, you're probably exceeding my pay grade here a little bit, but you know, the bottom line is, is when people who are holding dollars 
uh, because it's the world's reserve currency, no longer do. People who are holding it because it's the float used in the oil trade, uh, and that's declined quite a bit. Personally, what I think cost Saddam Hussein his life, right? That's a whole story if you follow that. But if the Fed truly has the strength to be able to grab all of the excess dollars, the Fed can't print yuan. The Fed can't print gold. So the only thing the Fed can buy anything with is with dollars. So if somebody is trying to divest themselves of dollars, the Fed is going to have to go buy something from somebody who is willing to take dollars. And the ultimate question is, in an environment where the Fed's balance sheet is 10 trillion or 15 trillion or 20 trillion, and the US debt is 200%, 250, 300% of GDP, and we now no longer have the biggest army, the most productive economy, or the most gold, or the reserve currency status, who the hell's going to want dollars? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's not just a little change. It's 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 like falling off a cliff change. Right. It's a sea change. Now the safety net is is metals, and you know I wish I was talking to this group obviously back when we did future of money and wealth and even before then because there's been a lot of opportunities. You know, gold went up to nineteen hundred and fell back down to thousand fifty and bounced off that low three or four times over the course of a few years. That was the ideal time to be be doing a lot of this. But if you if you if you look at what's happening and the size of the balance sheet, and you look at you listen to people like Peter Schiff, and you know, I mean, you can say, well, Peter's been wrong, 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 and all of a sudden he's way right, right? Well, he was right the whole time. It's just that just the timing. Yeah, you've got to let it come to you. It's just like Russia and China have not backed off one iota in wanting to take the world, dethrone the dollar. They're playing a long game. I just got done reading Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game. And the problem is real estate investors in particular, but most people in, in America, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm talking from an American perspective because I'm an American and that's mostly of you know, the folks I deal with, but we're myopic as hell, right? I mean, we manage our companies quarter to quarter. We, we you know, manage our, our politics election to election, you know, not even four years. It's really with the offset with the Senate and Congress, it's like every two years, so we're just always managing, we're always playing the short game. Investors, especially real estate investors, especially those that are flipping are playing a short game. Stock people, everything you see on TV is about trading, day trading, short-term trading, buy low, sell high. Everybody's playing a short game. I wrote an article once, and I thought it was a clever title, called The, war, the Art of War Versus the Art of the Deal. Mm. And you know, I do think that Trump is probably a longer term thinker than most of his contemporaries are as far as politicians go. But I don't think he's in the same ballpark as the Chinese. Right. Oh, clearly, clearly. Right. The Chinese play a hundred year game. They see the big picture. Putin's been the same guy. He was, the, he was there for, for GW Bush, there through all of Obama, probably going to be there through all of... Uh, all of Trump, they can play a long game. And I think they're playing a long game. And I just don't think enough people are talking about it. And you know, maybe it's a coincidence, but who are the two big boogeymen in the world right now? Who have been the two big boogeymen for the last 10 years? Xi and Putin. China and Russia. Yeah, China and Russia. So you know, I'm not saying there's not legit things to be upset with them about. I'm not qualified to know. I'm just pointing out the things that I read, they're right there in the news. I do a segment on the Real Estate Guys radio show called Clues in the News. 
and I write a newsletter every week and I just delve into this stuff and I try to break it down and bring it home, right? Because this is all like up here. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, I'm a street level investor. What can I do in my portfolio? And the biggest thing is like in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Kiyosaki changes the way you think. You really, it's kind of taken his core premise, which is not capital gains, but cash flow. And he's a big gold. He'll sit there and tell you savers are losers, but yet he hoards gold. Yes, he does. Kiyosaki is a saver. So he's just meaning you're a fool to hoard currency because currency is just a tool. It isn't an end game. It's not a destination. Nothing you should do should, the end result success is not to sit there with a pile of cash. That's not the end game. The, the, the really the ultimate goal to true wealth is to accumulate the efforts of others. When you make a loan to someone and presumably you do it in their best interest to help them to acquire an asset that will enrich them, to help them start a business that will allow them to make the living, to buy a piece of equipment they need to enhance their productivity. When you do that, you earn a piece of their livelihood, the borrower's servant to the lender, right? You get the rent on the money. When you buy a piece of property for someone and allow them to live there, either because they want the flexibility, they want to put their capital into their business or other areas of their life, or they're not yet ready to be able to purchase their own home, you are providing them with a valuable. But here's the deal. In both cases, whether they are a tenant or a, a, a borrower, those folks get up every day and go to produce and send you a piece of their production. You have harnessed the effort of others and that denomination of wealth. And then you take a percentage of that income and you use it to build up a base of liquid wealth that insulates you from the corrupt financial system that has been erected all around you based on this very same premise. There are people who play the game of harnessing the efforts of others at such a high level in my personal opinion, they become sociopathic about it. And I think that's why I promote syndication and private capital. I hate Wall Street with a passion. I don't like the banks. I don't like the system. I think it's evil. It's modern day slavery. The serfs in England had it better. But I can't change that politically. What I can do is I change it at the street level. And every man or woman that I can show how to start a syndication business and go raise private capital, Main Street investing in Main Street, not cycling money into Wall Street where they can package it up in a mortgage-backed security and send it back to Main Street. Main Street investing in Main Street, cut those jokers out. Let them go work for a living like the rest of us. That's my thing. That's why I do what I do. That's why I love what Victor is doing. That's why I love what all of you guys are doing out there on Main Street. I just encourage you, take it to the next level. Think bigger. Do bigger projects. There's plenty of money out there. Right now, we hang out with people like us, and we're trying to figure out how to make our first million, our first two million, whatever the number is. But there's a lot of people out there that have five and $10 million that now only have three or $7 million. They're looking for a path back, but they have capital to invest. And if you can explain to them why the system that just ripped them off in their, in their view is not to be trusted and is not a safe place to go and the surer path to real wealth, not get rich quick, but the sure path to resilient, sustainable, 
long-term wealth is going to be through real assets based on cash flow and real utility. And if you can learn to make that case, you will attract capital and people will invest with you. And then your mission is just to run successful projects. And if you do that, you're going to have a great business. You're going to make a, a dent in the world. You're going to help a lot of people. And I think you'll be able to go to bed and put your, pillow, your head on that pillow for the very, very last time and go, you know what? Good job. Good job. That was a life well lived. Well, folks, that's part four of my conversation with Russell Gray, co-host of the Real Estate Guys radio show. If you've not tuned into the Real Estate Guys radio show, you definitely want to check them out. They're on all the favorite platforms where you listen to podcasts, and you can also reach out to them directly at realestateguysradio.com. That's realestateguysradio.com. I learned so much from my conversations with Russ, and I'm sure you have as well. I often actually go back and listen to the same conversation more than once. As you think about that, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.